Worm Reading Room, a literary podcast devoted to the works of Appendix A. Here we open the library doors of the Sanctum Socorro to you. And welcome to the inaugural stream of the Sanctum Socorum Reading Room. Whether you are new to the literary world of Appendix N, a diehard fan of the genre, or even just tuning in to see how certain titles tie into a particular set of role-playing games, we invite you to join us as we dive into the history and influence of Appendix N. We'd like to open our library to you and inspire readers to explore these new worlds. I am Keeper Jen, and with me tonight, we have Keeper Mark. Hi, everyone. And Keeper Bob. Hey, folks. And with the Keepers of Mystery, we're crossing the streams a little bit, and we have Judge Julian from this podcast called Spellburn. <laughs> I think I've heard of it. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not really a Keeper. I'm more of a throwback, probably. But uh, <laughs> I mean... Last name starts with B. We're all good there, right? Right. Oh my God. <laughs> it's the J's and the B's. Is that the rule? J's and the B's. That really is how it's worked out. Yeah. Funny that. Uh, well, folks, tonight in this first episode of The Reading Room, we are, of course, examining the Dying Earth stories of Jack Vance. Um, Mark, do we have a synop? Sure do. The six stories that make up the first volume of The Dying Earth are all set in an undefined far future Earth, when the sun is nearing the end of its life. The sky ranges from a pink to deep blue, lit by a dim red sun, and many strange plants and animals exist. Much of the story is set within the forested country of Astolay and in the ruined cities that dot the landscape. Seekers of wisdom and beauty include lovely lost women, eccentric wizards, and man-eating melancholic deodans. <laughs> Twickmen ride dragonflies and trade information for salt. There are monsters and demons. It is a world where each being is morally ambiguous. The evil are charming. The good are dangerous. And with that, we'll open our reading room for this, uh, what is turning out to be the month of Vance for us and Goodman Games. Right? Yes. <laughs> I think I've, I've read and reread Dying Earth more in the past month than I have in the past several years on the project, but it's been fantastic. Okay, so some stuff that really pops out to us. Go for it, Julian. I would say it doesn't, you know, it is interesting because I did a little bit of rereading for tonight's event, and I tried to kind of dip in and survey from all four books. Actually, I think I missed Kugel's saga. I was going to get there and I missed it, but I, I dipped into the one, two, and four. And, you know, I was struck by how compact they are. I mean, a lot happens and a lot of crazy imagination is, is stuffed into them, but it probably would only take like 24 hours to read all four books. Is that any, I mean, of course. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. I, I would say that that wholly depends on your reading abilities. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I'm not like a Tolkien-esque effort or a, uh, Robert Jordan or something. I mean, yeah. just 
considering pay, if, if you think about a sort of standard appendix and paperback page count instead, something a little less subjective. Well, I think part of that compactness and density of the stories is because they were short stories. They were all kind of written to stand alone at a much smaller page count, and then they're put together to tell a larger story. But there's a difference, right? It's, it's sort of like, I don't know, writing a module versus a rule book, right? I mean, you, <laughs> you, you've got a smaller word count, you've got to focus everything in. And I think for the reader, that really pays off because there is there's so much there and there's definitely no wasted verbiage, just strange verbiage. I, I mean, I find it really interesting that the, each of these stories are sort of like isolated. But when I go back and sort of like reflect on Dying Earth and sort of my thoughts about it, I always think of it as the whole set of four novels, like the whole span. Like they're all integral to me. And maybe that's the way that I approached it, you know, which is I started, you know, as a reader of these stories with the Omnibus edition. And that was the full 800 page collection. And it always seemed like one complete world, one complete set. Then, but when you dive into the details and you see like sort of like the evidence of these isolated, you know, narratives, you know, the fact that this was written over like 35 years, right? You know, that it spans this huge amount of time all the way from the 1950s when what he was writing was so completely different than, you know, science fiction. Well, I I mean, it it obviously, it it just feels very of the 70s, of the 80s for me, but it goes way back in the lineage, goes way back. And, And like I said, though, like my experience as a reader has always been sort of like the complete story. And it's hard to sort of like break it out into those individual components now that I've read it so many times in that format. That's that's really true. It, while while they were all written at different times and and written separately, it does sort of form its own complete narrative. So when you you can sit down and you can read it cover to cover in like the big omnibus, like the was it the fantasy masterworks, masters of fantasy set, and tales of yeah, yeah, and it's just it's it's one big great story. I, I had a big omnibus edition that had a satellite on the cover. Mm-hmm. It was really weird. Like what had nothing to do at all. It didn't seem to have anything at all to do with the contents of any of the books or anything. It was the most bizarre cover art that you could really pick outside of something completely non-science fiction. Yeah, it, it worked well for Vance's stories, but not so much for the dying earth. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously has plenty of more uh, you know, pulpy sci-fi stuff, which which I also love, but also wrote some Ellery Queen stories. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And a lot of he has a lot of mystery. A lot of his sci-fi stuff is kind of in the mystery. You know, mysteries embedded in the sci-fi. The demon princes. There's there's a lot of mystery elements and stuff like that. I don't know. He doesn't do it in Dying Earth, though, does he? I don't think so. I never really got that particular feeling. Uh, I mean, certainly some some of Vance's other work also kind of focuses on the the world gone by sort of thing. The world sort of at the end, like the last castle certainly has that same sort of feeling. And The Last Castle really, in a lot of ways, you could almost drop it into the dying earth without even noticing. But I think that's that's part of it. There's a few few more sci-fi elements to it, and there's no real magic element to it, but it has a very similar feeling. And I mean, I guess part of that feeling, right, is just the way that Vance wrote. I mean, we all kind of talk about Vancean language, and, and I know that some people just hear that and it makes them feel like the stories are less approachable, but they really aren't. Yeah. Like one of the comments here in the Twitch stream, Mr. McDevitt is casting his charm of Folgers and fatigable pot of extreme wakefulness on himself, as well as grabbing his thesaurus and his ibuprofen. 
And <laughs> I, I kind of feel that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, authors, if you look at stuff from like 30s, 40s, even into the early 70s, if you look at the way they wrote compared to the way contemporary authors write, there's a huge difference. There's been a, a massive shift in language overall. But I think that if you're used to reading older science fiction and fantasy, Vancian really isn't anything that's going to throw you for a loop because you're just going to have to figure it out from context like everybody does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I've heard so many people say that it feels unapproachable, especially, you know, they get like two pages in, they really, really want to give it a shot because of the DCC Dying Earth project that's going on. And they just, they can't get more than a couple of pages in. They they feel like they're just in over their heads. And I have a very vehement soapbox on this that I get that. I, I totally understand. I feel like the dummy of the group and don't let this make you feel dumb. Don't let this. I, no, not at all. Especially since most of the words that you're looking at going, I don't know what that means. Nobody does. There's right? a good reason for it. Man's made them from whole cloth. So yeah. yeah. I guess, well, that, that yeah. does bring up an interesting question, which is like the chronological order of reading. You know, those early stories are very much sort of in that kind of older sci-fi fantasy vein, right? Yeah. If you reordered them or made a recommendation to say start with a later one, do you think that would be something that some readers would find more approachable, especially the ones that are like the cool stories, you know, are, are kind of a little yeah. bit more of tied together, the narrative, and they have this, yeah, you know, and they are separate enough from the earlier ones. Is that an entry point, you know, for I, some writers? I think it, it is one option. It, it's a topic that we've been bandying about on the, the Facebook DCC group for a while now. And, you know, if it just feels too wordy, then yeah, jump into the Kugel stories. You know, you might want to do the Eyes of the Overworld before Kugel Saga, but it really depends on what you're more in the mood for. If you just want those, um, h- how did you phrase it, Julian? Um, morally deficient. Um, <laughs> what, under, you just want that kind of adventure. Under moralized and over civilized. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Which I also aspire to. <laughs> yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> But it is a process, and and I understand you, you have to get toes wet before you jump in face first, and and I get that. So, for kind of a happy medium of say fantasy writing in the latter half of the twentieth century, try songs of the dying earth, and try that compilation that draws on the feel of it, but maybe not on all of the verbosity. Have you, any of you read uh, my, any? I, I bought it uh, like uh, five, six years ago, actually, when I was overseas of all places. And song that? Yeah, and it's sitting on my shelf, but I've never actually cracked it. I read it a while back and I, I thought it was really good. I mean, you know, Neil Gaiman's got a story in it. There's some really good stuff. It definitely. It definitely wasn't written by Vance, but it, it has that feeling, right? It's it's not a collection of bad pastiches where you're like, oh, yeah. no. I mean, the people that wrote these stories really cared about the project and cared about the setting. Right. So, so that carries through. And, you know, that might be a good way for someone to introduce themselves to the world of the dying earth. But at, you know, at the end of the day, Vance is really the, the heart and soul of it. I, I've never read something by Neil Gaiman that has been too complex. And uh, Julian, to answer your question, I'm in the middle of listening to it again right now. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I, I loaned it a long time ago. When I first read the compendium, which was maybe 15 years ago or something, I came a little bit late to the Vance party. But when I had first read it, I was really blown away and I recommended it to all my friends and so on and so forth. And actually, they didn't come, nobody complained about the language at all. But I did have one of my friends come back and say, it's boring because there's no characterization. There's no plot and there's no characterization, right? And I think she's probably reading the Kubel stuff rather than the um, yeah. uh, the first stories. But, you know, I, it's, it's true in a sense, right? It's not uh, Dostoevsky or something, right? It doesn't fall into 20th century psychological deep dives into characterization and all that stuff. You know, he's, he writes these picaresques, which are really a much older tradition, you know, from the 18th century. You know, the, I went here and then I had a short adventure and then I got chased out of here and then I went here and I had a short adventure and I got chased out of here and I went here. And it, there's like, look at Tom Jones and look at... Uh, well, and that's definitely the influence of the pulps too, right? I mean, when you're pitching a story that may be only you know, six to 10,000 words and you know, you, you, you're trying to get the shop that and get that in while you're writing, you're still writing the next, you know, three stories like that. Everything's got to be really tight and then just being able to string it together makes it more commercially approachable, right? Well, yeah. Look at Lankmar. People like that. And so while people like that, now we can, in the next issue, we can have another one. And and that sort of flow really lends itself, one, of course, to to collecting it like Dying Earth has been, but also I think keeps the momentum going. Once you get into it, even if you have a problem kind of getting started, once you get into it, you're not going to stop until you're done. It's, it's just one of those things. Once you get on that roll, it just, it just doesn't stop. Yeah. Uh, it is a product of the short story, right? Because when you're trying to sell the story, you're saying, well, I got another Kugel story and your readers know him now, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't want to, if you're selling Fafford and the Mouser, you don't want to be like, oh, but, but Fafford and Mouser are totally different this time, but still buy my story. You know, I know your readers love him, but I've totally changed everything, you know? Well, technically um, that's what Liber did because none of it was published in the order that you know it now. <laughs> Well, and and Howard jumped around at Conan, of course, the way they were. Right. But they were still all recognizable as the same character. While there was character development in the stories, there weren't massive shifts. I mean, Conan might go from from a pirate to to a gladiator to a king, but he was still very recognizable as Conan with just, Mm -hmm. you know, pirate or gladiator (laughs) or king, you know, as attachment. And so that keeps it, it keeps it approachable for the audience. Uh, Mr. McDevitt brings up another good point that all of this was done on a typewriter. Yeah. <laughs> you guys think that actually changed the way fiction was put out? Oh. I mean, besides having the, the short episodic publications there, just the little pulps, um, now you could just churn it out on, you know, word processor. So I get the sense of that for writers at that time, it, would have been their native tool, right? And so it would have yeah. been less of an impediment than for, you know, our our kind of modern approach to it. But that's fair. at the same time, that's really daunting, right? You know, just to have this skill in order to to write a story and, you know, you don't have the, the kind of modern equipment to be able to go back, edit, you know, save versions of it. But that was the medium for this generation of writers going back before Vance and well into the 70s and, uh, you know, and even into the 80s. But you're right. I think it, it does. I mean, it, it's a different type of writing style that, you know, I don't have a lot of experience, you know, with that. And so it's hard for me to like sort of say, 
you know, what does that, what would that do to your, your approach to writing? All I'll add is that I'm glad I'm not his editor. Um. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Um, a lot of, if you look back at like the collected papers of Liber or Lovecraft and you look at the drafts that exist for the stories, they didn't go through a lot of drafts. They tried to be very succinct and they were, they were careful in their word choices to begin with. So there was a lot more thought during the writing process, whereas I think today we'll throw down words because we know that we can just go back and we can change them or, or cut and paste and reorder them. And so I think the style of writing was a lot more methodical. You had to slow down. You really had to select your words because if it's 10,000 words, you don't want to have to be retyping this thing five, six, 10 drafts down the road. You just want to get it done properly. Yeah, certainly the the thing you brought up about the pulps and the a lot of these were published as stories, like a lot of Appendix N, of course, is really relevant to my friend's complaint. And I think to new readers of probably Vance and Appendix N is that they were selling these as stories, right? So Tolkien didn't publish parts of, you know, the two towers in, you know, Weird Tales or Tales to Astonish or something. And Certainly George R. R. Martin never did, and uh, Robert Jordan never did. I mean, not any parts of those stories anyway. Not any part of those stories, yeah. No. So, I mean, so the whole market shifted, I think, with Tolkien to kind of get away from the pulp genre. The high, you know, it shifted to those epic, intricately designed fantasy epics and that kind of stuff. Well, but... I'm not as well read in the other Vance works that he's done, but did Vance also shift to that kind of format too for his other stories that he wrote, the other novels that he wrote, or was he still writing kind of episodically and and, and with a pulp style? Most of the things of his that I've read outside the dying earth. So the demon princes, and I, I just read the second Alistair novel, which is a science fiction thing mm-hmm. and uh, read the dragon masters, which is amazing. But anyway, they were um, they were short novels, very short novels. Not the Dragon Master is maybe more of a novella uh, almost. But I think the in a kind of standard uh, pulp paperback thing, nothing more than two hundred pages. I don't think, or maybe a few of them broke barely broke two hundred pages. That was kind of standard up through the seventies for most of the genre. I mean, you pick up a, a fairly small, thin paperback, oh, and yeah. now of course it's going to be seven hundred pages, and it's part one of forty. Right. Yeah. In some ways, I prefer the older way better. And maybe, maybe it's just because I'm going gray, but I, I like to be able to pick up a story and enjoy it and then move on to something else as opposed to spend a week you know, reading something that, that may or may not be overly dry and then wait a year and a half for the next volume. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I actually just picked up uh, an old sci fi pulp collection because it had a story in there by Liber and, and a small one by Vance, I believe. And I was like, okay, I, I could sit down and I can read this one little story and put the book down. I'm never going to go back to it, but it did something to my brain. I'm, it just started kicking things in. I'm like, okay, let me go back to the songs of the dying earth. Let me go back to some of these old things that I haven't explored just yet because even tiny, it's still digestible and it, the use of language and the way they formed just sentence structure made me come away from it differently. I, I mean, I, I actually got something out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you look at authors, especially Vance, 
the quality of his writing was was definitely recognized, right? I mean, uh, World Fantasy Award Life Achievement in 84, um, Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America gave him, uh, he was a grandmaster in the 90s. He won Hugo's. He was in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. He even won an Edgar Award. So this is definitely an author who was very, very prolific, wrote a lot of fantastic things, and yet I don't think his work is as well known as it should be, right? I mean, we all, we well, most most folks love Tolkien. <laughs> I really hate the way he breaks into song every 40 pages or so, but no, no. But everybody everybody knows him, but if you look at his body of work, it's much smaller than Vance's. Every you know, everybody has at least heard of of Lovecraft, whether for good or bad reasons. Everyone's familiar with Lovecraft and Cthulhu is now pop culture. It's it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. And for some reason People just aren't as familiar with Vance, and I think that's a real shame, and there's a lot to get out of it. Well, I was kind of curious about that point because, you know, this Vance is one of these, it seems like, you know, an author's author to some extent, or within the genre of the kind of the D&D, you know, or, or role-playing game literature, once people discover him and sort of discover the origins, it becomes a figure that's that has a lot of, like, currency and renown, but outside of that, he's not very well-known, right? I, I wouldn't say, I, I would say even... Liber is, you know, one of these kind of figures that's gotten a lot more sort of mainstream versions, right? You know, the Farquhar and Grey Mouser stories have a lot of comic book adaptations. You know, I obviously like Howard and Lovecraft and Tolkien. These are these are very recognizable names for a lot of, you know, non-fantasy people. But why didn't Vance sort of get even to that that sort of tier of of name recognitions that it seems like he should be based on how much authors like him and how much like he's got attachment within us, you know, this community. So rewind everything back to 1983, right? And here's a fox-faced vagabond with his black hair and everything, and it's Arnold Schwarzenegger is Kugel the Clever. <laughs> I mean, you just to if you compare him to Howard in particular, right? Which is maybe not fair because Howard's kind of at the far extreme of stuff. So maybe a library comparison is a little better. But we, I would we, like to see John Milius's version of Google uh, Google Saga. Sure. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right, for sure. I think it would be better as uh, not as Mad Max post-apocalypse, but I think that director right would be really fun. Um, I can't remember his name, but think of the last one. That's maybe as close to the dying earth, like craziness as anyway. Yeah, I think the the primary knowledge of the word Vance comes from people who play D&D are often referring to Vancey and magic just because that's how Gary referred to it. Without really knowing what it was. Exactly. I mean, when I first started playing <laughs> and I read Vancey and Magic, I had no clue. I'd never read Jack Vance and I, I didn't have any context. And so, yeah, it was just, well, it's Vancey and Magic. What's that mean? Uh, it's just called Vancey and Magic. <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. Have you ever, so I, so I wondered a lot this week as I was thinking about this event, like, why is there no, you know, I mean, how many pastiches has Conan inspired? You know, look at what Gardner Fox did. Look at what Lynn Carter did. Look at all these guys who ripped him off and flatteringly imitated him and all that good stuff. And even Liber to a lesser degree, because it got harder and harder because his language is is a little more subtly unique and stuff like that. You know, he, he's also, he has maybe a little more of a unique imprint, maybe. But why no create? I mean... Can you even imagine anybody really successfully making a, I mean, is there a, uh, what's his name? What's the guy who is Lovecraft's imitator? August Derleth, right? Is there, oh. 
Is there an August Durlith for Jack Vance or uh, you know? Michael Shea? Really? I mean, you have My- Michael Shea did one, what one Kugel novel and then one short story. And of course the both were authorized, but the novel was retconned when Vance went back to the character, but he certainly approached it pretty well. Have you read either of those? Um, I've read, I read the Michael Shea one years ago and I, I couldn't tell you much about it, but Michael Shea also, you know, he, that's one of the things that he did when he was starting out, he wrote a sequel to the color out of space by Lovecraft. It was the color out of time. And his big thing was he really worked on matching the voice of the author. And so when you, when you read his stuff, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's not Vance, but it's close. It's not Lovecraft, but it's close. And they they certainly kind of followed the uh, the tone and feel of things. Well, it's it's just like when you when you talk about Dying Earth, a lot of people will talk about like William Hope Hodgson or Clark Ashton Smith's uh, Zothique. and Zothique kind of inspired Dying Earth, and then Dying Earth inspired Book of the New Sun. It really is. There's actually a science fantasy science fiction subgenre which is called Dying Earth. And it's it's that whole concept of it's post-apocalyptic, not because of a cataclysm, but because you know, the laws of the universe have worn out, the sun's going out. And and other people, I mean, Lovecraft has written, you know, wrote a couple stories that that fall into that category before it was even created. Brian Aldiss, Lynn Carter, Moorcock, the uh, Dancers at the End of Time series. Hmm. That's classified as, as dying earth. And so... And it's Gene Wolfe is the other one that's banded around. Yes, Gene Wolfe, uh, that's the Book of the New Sun. Uh, but when you, when you look at it, when you look at it as a, as a broader genre, sort of like, you know, Sword and Sorcery was created to describe the stories of Conan. And Dying Earth as a subgenre was, was named to describe a particular type of story, but it was specifically named for Vance's work. And uh, I mean, technically speaking, even things like Vampire Hunter D and Thundar the Barbarian qualify as as Dying Earth, which I thought was kind of fun. But so there's there's this sort of uh, reverberation that has gone through literature and uh, pop culture that, yes, there were there were waves of it beforehand with writings by like Byron and Shelley, but it when once once Vance jumped in, that's where it really carried out from. And I don't think people realize how how transformative the works were to what we consider the literature today in in the genres. I mean, I think that some it, it, one of the things that I I think that you were talking about, Julian, when we were on um, Keep Crawling or Keep on Crawling, was why didn't this sort of spawn this sort of its own vein, right? You know, which to your point, Bob, there is this sort of vein of the dying earth stories, but nobody really, I don't think there's a lot of identification, you know, with it. It's, it's sort of like post apocalyptic. It's sort of like the, the larger umbrella that people look to that. And most people aren't familiar with the subgenre. Yeah. Right. And, and this is a very sort of specific, like, okay, that what's happening at the end of the earth, you know, that time. And I think part of this is that, you know, that, what Vance does in these stories and what I find really appealing to it, to it is that it has this sense of there's, there's such a varied landscape in everything that happens in the Dinger stories, you know, the, you know, obviously it's all, we only have 800 pages of, you know, sort of the core Vance novels, but yeah. everything from 
uh, you know, the science and technology aspect of rediscovering sort of like these lost cities to the magic to, you know, the, the, the floating castles and traveling to and journey to other space to the sort of Kugel, you know, uh, you know, picaresque stories. It's, it doesn't feel like they're, I mean, it feels like the landscape is so broad that it's hard to like for people to, to say it is one thing, right? And I think that that kind of identification in literature, like with, you know, Conan or with Token or with, you know, these other authors are, are, are you know, it's, it's a lot easier to sort of, you know, carry that identification into, into like creating like a, a, a that vein, you know, that, that we've been talking about rather than sort of, you know, obviously influencing a lot, but not necessarily like being attributed, you know, directly or tied back directly to this one author. I'll try to do my best. That was actually pretty good, but I'll, I'll do my best to answer my own question very in a very concise way. First of all, you could try to imitate Vance, but not really without the language. And then when you try to imitate Vance's language, it's going to be so crap. It's just derivative. <laughs> yeah, it's either going to be such so completely bald-facedly derivative that it will be ridiculous or it'll be very wishy-washy and you just won't get there. You know, he drops those words when he drops them. And it's not really only about the vocabulary. It's also the very cold concision of the way that he writes. Right. And the way that his characters speak, you know, concision. Okay. Nice. The dialogue. Oh, the dialogue is fantastic. Here we go with the Bernickyisms. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I, I may have advanced a word there, but who knows? (laughs) <laughs> always trying to advance the language a little bit <laughs> but that's very true right i mean there's not many authors that could create language the way vance did and to work with language the way that vance did i mean like you know, mervyn peak with gormenghast there's language right oh yeah but it is it is more obtuse and less approachable than vance because when you're when you're reading a vance story and he drops he drops a word, even if you don't know what he's naming because it's something of the dying earth itself, your brain just sort of accepts it and moves on because it makes sense in the context of the story. If a chair is made out of a particular material, you just go, oh, well, that's some sort of wood and you keep going. But in your brain, you get that extra flavor. You get that alien flavor to it. And I think that's, that's also key. While Vance... Vance is not big on in-depth descriptions. I think we can all agree on that. Yes. Which is kind of refreshing, to be honest. But he also was was definitely painting a picture. He wasn't trying to, to take shortcuts or hide things or obfuscate them. He just used his language to give things more of a feel than a visual image in a lot of cases. Make it more evocative, definitely. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, very true. And some of it is very visual, but it's also, it brings out the kind of foreignness, not foreignness even, but the whimsy, for lack of a better word, or the exoticness of the of, of his, uh, just the craziness of the imagination. And I suppose some people struggle with that and don't like, it's not necessarily just vocabulary, but it's feeling like they don't know what he's talking about. And, and you've got to go with it, right? It's... <laughs> It's hard to break through that that barrier, though, and I, I yeah. get that. Oh yeah, no, I, I I can understand why people wouldn't like that. It might it might have put me off when I was younger, especially. But as I got older, it's one of those things. Yeah, you know, when when you're younger and you're reading a book and you hit a word you don't know, what's the first thing they say? Well, if you don't know what it is, look it up in the dictionary. That doesn't help you with fans. 
<laughs> that is so misleading when uh, you, you just can't. But now think about the fact that you know Vance and the Dying Earth has been translated into a number of languages. I do not envy the people that had to do those translations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's got a, it's it's yeah. own sort of dedication and wow. uh, yeah, that'll be interesting to to talk to some of the folks uh, yeah. that are involved in that. Oh man, yeah, I mean the the whole uh, Vance Integral Editions project where they stripped everything back because you don't stop to think that when a book gets published, you know, editors make changes mm-hmm. and then there's corrections made and then a new publisher is working from a manuscript and they make different changes and they sort of cascade. And so they stripped everything back to the purity of what Vance had originally put down on paper. And these were people all over the world that volunteered to do this and to uh, put this project together. And so I think that that shows the the level of passion that people have once they start reading Vance, that they're going to collectively do something like that and then collectively try and translate it into a different language. Because again, that that hurts my brain to think about. Yeah, I've got a really important question from the Twitch feed here. What does excalibrating translate to in Tagalog? (laughs) (laughs) A little rusty on my Tagalog. (laughs) Thank you. It really makes me wonder if you're looking at the etymological roots of the words, would you then translate those root meanings to the different language and then try to come up with a new neologism? Neologism? Yeah, that's the word we're using. Or do you just cheat and treat it as a proper noun and just get (laughs) it on? Talicize it because it's foreign. (laughs) But so much of what he was doing is also, he wasn't necessarily inventing a lot of his words were invented, right? So a lot of the, you know, the Vancean language is about the, you know, the words that he came up with. But a lot of what he was doing was resurrecting or going back to alternative versions, you know, uh, uh, historical versions of words, right? In some cases, you know, so oh, that, yeah, the, the obsolete and the archaic. Obsolete and archaic, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that could play into a translation, you know, just going back into sort of the, what is the, you know, somebody who knows a, a language you know, like similar to English, you you obviously have access to the older versions of the words, and I think that's where you'd find sort of analogs for the translations. I imagine, but I, but not having met anybody who's done that you know, for bands, I'd be really curious. Well, and I think for newer readers, I think that gets amplified because we were talking about how language has changed in the genre, right? From the 40s, 50s, 60s, very different from the writing style of the the 90s and the noughts. And so there's a lot of language, even from the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, that is now kind of fallen from usage. It's becoming obsolete. It's starting to feel archaic. And I think in a lot of ways that enhances the dying earth overall, but it's also, I don't know, it's also kind of sad, right? I think that, that authors of the time what they put down on paper was so so much more rich and and evocative and, and right old. and it almost goes back to the having time to thoughtfully construct your words so i'm going to sum up that what you just said bob as i'm personally turning 51 this month and everything sucks now <laughs> that, you, know, you could even shorten it to get off my lawn yeah I was <laughs> so, so here's a question for you to slightly turn things I was looking at the chronology because I think it was Jen when we were emailing around earlier was asked, was talking about what about the chronology of how the stories are published? Is there anything interesting there and stuff? 
So I looked at them and I, and actually it's kind of a straight line from the book and the, in the first book, I believe in the, in 1950 to the, the first Kugel stories in the mid sixties, which then get collected. And then the later Kugel stories are published in the, a couple of them are published in the seventies, but the outlier in the midst of this strangely is Morion the magician the last of the Rialto stories gets published in 73 just in time to be a cardinal influence on Gygax right because it has Ion stones and yeah yeah ancient uh, magic and stuff like that although I don't know how well it, it might have been you know it may not have been the exact same version in the Rialto text I don't know if that was before Kugel Saga oh yeah well yeah, before was- it was about Ryan was okay. Most of the stories in Google Saga, yeah, there were a couple yeah. of stories in Google Saga that came out a couple of years after, or around the same, you know. But when you look at that that section, the Rialto section, it, it's so different, you know, than than the other magician stories or the Google stories, you know. And it's just it's so far out there in terms of like extrapolating. Okay, what happens when you have the power here? The things that aren't present in the Morian stories are like the Sandistons. Mm-hmm. Those don't make an appearance, so they're not quite. There is, you know, still like magicians doing their own sort of feats of magic, but they're doing it at sort of this exceptional level. But it has like a bunch of bizarre and, and wild stuff in it compared to like the earlier books. Well, it's so bizarre because it's published in 73 in Flashing Swords, right? Which was like Lynn Carter's Sword and Sorcery. Well, it wasn't in like Flashing Swords 1? Yes, yes. And so first of all, if you, you've read Dying Earth, You've read the first, you know, Eyes of the Overworld, the first Kugel stories or whatever, and you're a Jack Fans fan, so you're looking for this, and you and bang, they sock you with Morian the Magician. So you haven't read any of the Rialto stories, you and you haven't read any of the second half of the Kugel stories. You just get bang, you get Morian the Magician, in which they chase an Archivolt around, try to get the Iron Stones, play games amongst each other to get, sorry, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, <laughs> play a bunch of games to get all the Ion Stones, and then they decide to go into deep space, deep to the freaking edge of the universe. I mean, crazy space travel, flying palaces, carving up planets to get at the cores of dwarf uh, planets around dwarf stars at the literal edge of the universe, all this craziness. And it's like, here you're reading that, you know, I, I have no idea what Flashing Swords is like. I, I have a copy somewhere buried away, at least one copy of those. But I mean, I'm, I'm imagining you have some pretty good stuff in there, but you, you probably have like half Conan pastiches or something. And then you suddenly... You have like mostly big names. You have like Lynn Carter, Liber. But yeah, then all of a sudden there's this and it stands out very mm-hmm. even if you Even if you had a great later Fawford and Mouser story, I mean, you know, sure, you'd... you'd it was quality would be high, right? You know, you'd be, oh, that was great. And you'd turn around and <laughs> you know, like, what in the world is going, I mean, yeah. so just trying to imagine what you would have made of that in 1973 without having any other Rialto stories, you know, and perhaps without having read Dying Earth and Kugel, right? Because it's in this collection, right? So you're well, not. Well, and I wonder like at that time, would people have even like sort of kept it as one whole, right? Or would they have just said, it's another setting piece. Where it's, yeah. it's a piece, but it wasn't, like I said, kind of going back to what I was saying in the beginning, it's hard for me to like separate the stories now, but I think then I'm not sure there would have been as much connective tissue in people's experiences of them. You know, especially like today we have the internet, we can connect anything. We can find out how things intertwine, but back in the day, right. I mean, unless you were 
browsing through a copy of the volumes of books in print, you'd pick something up and there'd be a short story. And, you know, three years later, there might be another collection that might have something by the same author. It may be something you follow up on. It might not be. You not necessarily ever know. Well, since I have you all here, I would like to go around. I'll, I'll start with our guest, Julian. Of this series, which of the individual stories is your favorite? It's really easy, but I can't tell you the name of it, um, but, I, but I bet Mark can. It's the one where, the, um, and it, I also didn't reread any of, this is the one book I didn't reread, so this is why I can't name this right. It's the one in, before they go uh, sailing on the Wormringer ship, where he and the other guy are in the bar, and they're squabbling over the pat. where Kugel, I'm saying, in Kugel's saga, they're in the bar and they're squabbling over who's going to get the passage on the ship. Mm -hmm. And then they start doing the progressively crazier bets, like they can't resolve. (laughs) And it's just totally slapstick. I mean, it just makes me laugh out loud every time I read it. And and Vance makes me laugh out loud, both in Kugel's stuff and also in some of the other stuff, like The Face and The Demon Princes. I mean, he's one of the few authors that actually, I mean... It's usually more of a turtle or a snicker than an uproarious guffaw. But anyway, I can't remember for the life of me if that chapter has a name or what's the name of it. But Was it, it the Inn of Blue Lamps? That sounds about right. It's the one right before Aboard the Galante. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that sounds right for sure. That That's a great part. I love that. And it's you know, a lot of those are are showing off the the sort of whimsy that, you know, mm-hmm. I think the language plays into the whimsy a lot, but Vance also knows how to sort of set up these sort of these situations, you know, and that that's a great scene. So what about you, Mark? Do you have a, a favorite I, that stands out? The the Morian story is probably my favorite out of all the 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 sort of like encapsulated stories. And just because it is sort of like this middle ground, you know, it's it's not like the full Rialto stories that he wrote later. It's not the earlier ones, um, you know, the, the earlier Tales of the Magicians. But I think that in itself is sort of like this sort of really kind of affecting story of, you know, this figure who who is uh, sort of disparaged and sort of thrown away and cast away and they find him and he's 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 sort of rediscovering himself. He's he's then he gets angry. And then they, and, and the end of the book is very abrupt, you know, just like this sort of like he's cast, he's sort of like cast away again. And and I just love that. I don't know, for me, it like draw it draws me in quite a bit to, you know, like his story and like sort of getting, in, you know, invested in it. And then it just ends with this sort of like, yeah, we just put him, you know, back in his place. And now he's, you know, sort of like serving, serving things, you know, for the magicians now going forward. Good thing we could forget about that, you know, and go back to our lives of debauchery and, and squabbling. Because I, I don't know, that, that story is probably my my favorite out of all the the dying Earth stories even the earlier ones which i really like the you know the earlier six novels that came out first that that may be the grimmest of ending <laughs> yeah. because he does become sort of a, a more of a sympathetic figure right mm-hmm. like if you look at what kugel does to those pilgrims in the eyes of the overworld that's extremely grim and there's a lot of grim stuff in Google's yeah. behavior obviously but <laughs> morally challenged <laughs> yeah but Morion is almost worse because I mean here's this well anyway yeah um sorry <laughs> no you're fine fine then I'll ask Bob do you have a particular favorite or does it all just blend together for you as well in a lot of ways it's just for, for me it's one big long story but if i had to pick a uh, a particular high point and much like julian i couldn't 
actually name the story, but I would refer to it as um, Kugel ruins the grand exposition of Marvels. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> it just just all of the character interplay that goes on there and google's not morally challenged he's morally bankrupt let's let's mm. be let's be fair he is not a nice person he's sort of like the deadpool of the dying earth um but i i really okay. kind of i kind of enjoy that i enjoy there's intrigue there's almost a uh that particular story almost has a commedia dell'arte feel to it uh, where it, it's definitely a, an older form of story being told in a new way. So you have real intrigue, but you also have kind of this underlying comedy of errors that, that has this overlay of just a horrible person trying to do horrible things for his own benefit. And uh, I, I, am, I am fond of that particular portion of the stories. What about you, Jack? No, sir. I don't like it. Um, <laughs> coming straight from Fawford and the Grey Mouser, I'm like, this is everything Fawford should never be and will never be. And Kugel just needs to go. And once in a while, <laughs> Karma would slap him upside the head. I'd be like, about time. So, no, my favorite is still from the original, the story of Sice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not that I have a fondness for the Vat thing. It, it's... There were so many flaws in her her form as she was created, but she didn't realize it. And there was something about that that I just found on a deep personal level, I, I found that to be just super fitting. And when to sing, I can't figure out if it's uh, to say or Saïs or yeah, okay. Uh, but when the other one is created, Tassane, I believe it is, that one is created with some of the qualities that Tassane doesn't have. And they kind of complement each other, but one is forced to put the other one essentially back in the vat for reprocessing. And yeah, that that one, that's the one that's sticking with me even through all these years since we first read it. Hmm. That is a good story. But again, so they, I, they all are. I, I dig the magic <laughs> and like all of you, yeah, Vancey and magic was just okay. Something that was referred to in the player's handbook. Yeah, that that's about it. Uh, that, those <laughs> two stories are really, are actually the first two, I think, to me, are actually pretty affecting. And there, it seems like that's about as emotional as the, it gets. And, and then it kind of descends into this, you know, it gets kind of proceedingly more colder and colder and more immoral or amoral with Kugel and with Rialto. But it's funny because a lot of the stuff that I've read of Jean Vance is, uh, is kind of along those lines or maybe revenge stories where the, you know, kind of Count of Monte Cristo is where their demon princes, you know, Kurt Gerson is out to, you know, get revenge on the bad guys for what they did to Earth or whatever. But so they're moralistic, you know, not that the good guys are that good, but they're moralistic. But but Leoness made me cry. Like Leoness is a totally different ball of wax. So Vance is oh, the follow-up series, right? Yeah, well not Dying Earth, but uh yeah, it's a later a later thing that he Leoness, Lioness, yeah. Yeah, uh, whatever. Another yeah. one of those. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, ask ask tomorrow. But anyway, there is stuff where he does, you know, it's not all one note, and he's capable of a lot of shades of stuff, too. So uh, just to throw that out there. Yeah, I mean, we could spend hours peeling back layers on Bay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I think, like, the earlier stories, there was a different set of 
moral values that are presented and, and even hope, right? You know, I think there's some, even though the context is, you know, the end of the world, but <laughs> a little bit, but I mean, like the, the Gaio story, you know, it's, it kind of ends on this sort of note of we've sort of relived the history of humanity and got to see all these sort of events that nobody else knows about. And so we're sort of not quite Adam and Eve like figures, but they're sort of, you know, they're presented with this knowledge that nobody else has. And it, it's sort of what happens next is a, it's less about Kugel sort of, you know, enjoying a life of pleasure, you know, at the end of his stories and not really ever seeing sort of a, a complete circle back to, you know, you know, it's going to happen, but you know, but it, his ends on like this sort of like, you know, why is he getting, you know, getting to enjoy this? <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, no. Well, folks, unfortunately, this is going to be about it. That's going to wrap up our time. Uh, to those of you who tuned in to the Twitch broadcast, thank you so much for your comments, your commentary, and uh, your viewership. And to our listeners, please feel free to hit us up with any feedback. It's thehub at sanctum.media. And a very special thank you to our co-hosts, Bob and Mark. And to our, our guest, Judge Julian, and it's really weird to call you a guest. And as the end of Gael of Sphere alludes to, Earth will need knowledge now more than ever. And we hope we've inspired you to read some Dying Earth. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everyone. Thanks a lot, everybody. Have a good Thanks, night. Thanks, Julian. Thanks all. Game on. Game on. Copyright 2021.